Um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, reminds us that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we've read this text every week. We will continue to do so and perhaps make little comments along the way. And I, I'm just struck by it, this, the, the, not, the, not the very first part of it. Uh, we'll perhaps get to that at some point. But here he, where he says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Um, not just, not just uh, major ones, but every sin, every weight we need to lay aside. And we need to realize that this is a difficult task, and this is something that we will get to um, in future weeks more so. I want to just set it up here, right? These sins, these weights that encumber us, that burden us, that seek to prevent us from running our race, they cling very closely. And so it is a difficult and determined work that we must do in order to lay them aside. And so we do that by looking to Jesus. And, uh, and not just as our example, though that is part of what get, he's getting at here. Jesus endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seen at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus is our example, but more than that, he, as we said, ran the race for us and won first place and graciously extends the, the prize money and the victory to all of his people. And so, again, as we, as we consider the difficult task of, of beating burnout, we need to remember the gracious nature of salvation and that Jesus has run for us. And then over in Acts 20, you'll recall... Paul, um, he, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul, perhaps um, most Strikingly, our great, greatest, the greatest Christian who ever lived uh, makes this his endeavor. Um, in some ways, a mission statement, if you will, to simply uh, finish the course that he has received. And this is something important to remember, too. Our lives are not our own. They have been given to us, granted to us, not just the, the, the breath in our lungs, but the the direction that we need to head has been granted to us and given to us by the Lord Jesus. And so we want to be faithful there. Well, one of the things that we can note about this difficulty of faithfulness, particularly in the present day, in 2022, comes to us in the form of a mini miniature computer that we keep.
keep around with us, basically at all times. It fits in our pockets, and it, uh, it wakes us up, it tells us good night, it makes sure that we and our children get to all of the various things on time, or at least lets us know when on time was supposed to be, and, um, and it promises much. And we began last week by um, quoting from a book called um, Restless Devices, and uh, we'll, we'll look more at that today as we begin to unpack just over, it'll be a few weeks, I think, where I just want to spend some time considering the unique difficulty presented to us in the present day with the digital landscape in which we live. The, the unique difficulty in particular as it, as it concerns this topic for not burning out. And part of that, I'll just say up front, I think I mentioned it last week, is this deal where we are always on or always expected to be on or at least believe that we are always expected to be on, right? Now, if you don't feel that way, congratulations, you are probably one of the, the small few, right? You, you, uh, you've arrived, so you can go take your break. Um, truth, yeah, I, truth is that I think that, that most of us feel this, this pressure, this tension to greater degrees at different times in our lives, surely. But we are always on. And, uh, and it's in no small part because of the, the coalescence of all things coming into this digital landscape. And we'll, we'll get more um, into that later. So, last week we concluded by saying there are two main ideas that we want to draw out with this in mind over the next few weeks. The first is that the digital landscape in which we live and move and have our being, um, it has a tendency to draw us into ever greater degrees of dependency upon it. Right? It, because of its draw, its allure at how easy it makes so many things up front, it draws us in. Well, related to that is the second point that we want to discuss, is that the digital landscape has been designed in such a way that not only is it easy to enter, it is difficult to exit, or difficult to perhaps escape. Much more so than we realize. And so we sort of summed it up in this way last time we said, in other words, the world in which we live, particularly as 21st century Americans, and this probably does skew toward younger generations, but I don't believe it only affects younger generations. But generally, people in America, 21st century, or the West, even more broadly, we live um, lives that are much more intentionally designed by other people than we realize. And for anyone who wishes to live a life not so heavily influenced or designed by others that we don't know, faceless tech companies, basically, and governments, uh, the road to freedom is fraught with much more danger than we, than we realize. So I want to spend this week and probably the next uh, week or so looking, uh, I think, at the first of those 
uh, points about the, the, the easy nature of entering into this landscape, and then we'll spend a couple of weeks thinking about how difficult it is to get out. So first, it's easy to enter. The digital landscape has an allure that is hard to ignore. It offers us something for which we long. The internet was invented, and boom, we could make and carry on relationships through the medium of a computer screen with people all over the world. Now, admittedly, this idea was met by two fairly different responses. What, what do you imagine those two responses are to this idea? How did, how did people respond? On the one hand, they responded how? Yep, alarm, right? Like, this, this is concerning. This, this, this has got some scary potential. What was the other response? Euphoria, right? It was just, we're diving in. We are all in. Some feared that the internet would tempt us to forget our real lives. More people, it seems, however, were enamored with the nearly limitless possibilities that would be at our disposal with such a device. Uh, Felicia Wu Song, whom I quoted last week from the book um, uh, Restless Devices, she writes this, 30 years into this magnificent experiment of digital communication, when we look around at our world today, it seems that the optimists were mostly right. We don't appear to have completely lost touch with reality. We aren't cloistered in our basements or bedrooms playing the latest equivalent of World of Warcraft or Fortnite. We still manage to keep our jobs and tend to our families. How, how would you respond to that? What do you think about that statement? Dad says we don't have any basements, so what's the, I don't even understand the quote. <laughs> ba- base basement? Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> the question is, how, what do you, so that quote that I just read where she says, People were alarmed, people were uh, excited, and 30 years in or so, it roughly seems like the excited people were more on track, right? We haven't all completely just, we're not locked in our basements, whatever those things are, or our bedrooms. We keep our jobs, we still have families, etc. Thoughts? Yeah, I'd love to, to bat this around, but I agree. And that was exactly the point that I wanted to make. I, I think, in general, I can agree with an, an aspect of what she is saying in this quote. But I, it's because I don't, I don't know that our society at large is, um, right, I mean, we're all here this morning, right? Like, not trapped in, at home, you know, um, and, and yeah, there is one group in particular that I think is, and it's, I guess maybe at this point it's more than in one, te- you know, technically, sociologically speaking, it's more than one group. But um, who are the, the young people, right? And people even younger than me, I'm talking about, right? Like people who were born either after or before the smartphone was, like just before or just after the smartphone was invented, right? Because you have the internet, then you have the smartphone, and those are two different things, but two 
uh, very important things that happened. But in 2007, the iPhone was invented. And so it will be interesting in another 30 years to see how the people who basically grew up knowing nothing else, right? Um, I mean, you know, I don't... I remember life before smartphones, but as a child, not even as an adult. And so what people who were adults long before the, the, the smartphone was invented or even before the Internet was invented, surely that's going to have a different type of effect on them than it will on people who that's the only thing that they know is this digital landscape, right? I, I think this is... Admittedly, this is just a stab. I don't know if this is true, that most people alive today, right, were alive before the smartphone was invented. I assume that that's still true, right? There are more people born after 2007 alive than were alive at, you know, the entirety of the year before that. But, and many people today can remember vividly what life was like even before the Internet. That is not going to be true one day. There is a day coming when a, there won't be, a, assuming that the internet doesn't, you know, evaporate or something, if it continues, there won't be a soul on earth that was alive before the internet, before social media, before the smartphone. So 30 years into this experiment, it, it, it yields certain results, which may not be that distressing depending on how you're looking at the groups. But what about 130 years from now? Or 330 years from now? We don't know. But based on the, the observation Christina made, there's something alarming about it. So what is it that the digital landscape offers? What, what's the allure? Well, Song, she writes, with our digital devices now in our pockets... In our bags and even beneath our pillows when we sleep, we move through our days and nights draped with the imminent sense of the digital. Ever available and accessible, it is perpetually poised to tend to our desires, living and breathing alongside us. And Song's point here, as is mine, is that the primary issue is not even that you, it's not that you can buy something off Amazon and arrive at your house in in two days, or sometimes that afternoon, right? I mean, isn't that just the crazy, like, that's insane. When it's same-day delivery, I'm like, it's four in the afternoon. How is this even possible? Something, I'm going to buy something that's going to be at my doorstep before 10 o'clock tonight? But I don't think that, now I think that has consequences, right? It's not, they aren't necessarily all bad, but there are consequences to that. Do we struggle with patience? But I don't think that's the ultimate problem. Nor is it ultimately that you can, you can pull up ways and find the fastest route to work each morning. The problem is that our, uh, our, the primary problem, as I see it, is that our phones have become the primary portal to our social lives. I think that's a bigger problem than, than all of the other stuff. The digital doesn't so much draw us away from friends and family as mediate them to us. Right? I don't think it is proven necessarily, at least for those who, ex- who lived before 
who were alive before the smartphone. It doesn't so much draw you away from friends and family, but it reframes the way you conceptualize friends and family. It mediates friends and family to you. Our social network gets looped into the, to the digital. What's unique about social media is that it becomes the sole proprietor of the social space where everybody you care about checks in. Right? It becomes the one-stop shop for all relationship security and social affirmation needs. Right? So your relational security, social affirmation needs all fit conveniently into your pocket. The little red dot on the app badge lets you know that something, or perhaps better, someone, is waiting for you. So what I think this does, and we'll talk about this more later, is that it leads toward a, an equating of quantity and quality, right? I don't know uh, about, I mean, I, th- I guess Instagram and some of the other um, social media um, platforms don't talk so much about friends, but more like followers, right? Isn't that kind of the deal? But Facebook was, was interesting in that it, it labeled the people that, you know, subscribed to your page or whatever as friends. So I've got 800 friends. I've got 8,000 friends or a million friends. But what's, one, the quality of those friendships and how, how do you actually define friendship? What is, what is friendship if I can be friends with a person that I met one time maybe or never met at all? Just because I, they know someone that I know, they clicked on my page, and we've never spoke, like, never shared even a word, right? Not even a, hey, thanks for adding me, just became friends, and that was it. They all show up on your birthday. Sort of, unless you're not very good about wishing people happy birthday on Facebook, then they're like, nope, forget it. <laughs> Sherry Turkle, um, she's a uh, MIT professor, author. She, she argues that, that it's reassuring and pleasurable to be constantly tethered to our loved ones through the digital. But it can also serve as a crutch when we grow to become people incapable of solitude, fearful of being alone with ourselves and our thoughts, and prone to turning to our screens and away from our immediate surroundings whenever we feel awkward, bored, or anxious. And we'll come back to this, but have you ever had that experience where something in a, you're, in, you're with a person, you're with a group, and something just slightly, there's a slight lull, something's slightly awkward, something, whatever, and, and it, you just, you're like, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. I'll just check what's, what's on my phone. We're not, we don't not look in our shoelaces anymore. We're looking at our, at our screens, probably for far longer. This digital tethering can force us to feel obligated, right? So not only does it perhaps pull us away in in important moments, but it it forces us to feel, or at least tempts us greatly, to, to feel obligated to be constantly available to our network of contacts, regardless of the time of day. This is the quote that I read from Song last week. She said, When the mobile, social, and infinitely novel aspects of the contemporary digital experience are mixed together, 
The result is a psychological cocktail of pleasures, anxieties, and felt expectations. There's a soft tyranny that persistently feeds our desires to check one's email, peek at one's Instagram, tweet one more remark, and respond to one more text. Indeed, with our devices in our possession, the promise of fulfillment, completion, and emotional connection feels ever within our reach. Here's the point. Life is constantly being lived elsewhere. Right? right? Like, at any, whatever you're doing, other people are living their lives completely separate from you. And that's going on every moment of every day. This expansion of our network, in a sense, and shrinking of the world, I think makes us, it offers us a connection to that. Right? What's the, my, so my kids both struggle deeply with uh, what they call FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, they get it honestly. Um, and I think, we, I think we all do, right? And so there's this idea that there's something. Have you ever gotten a text? And now some of you are probably great at this. Some of us are not great at this. Have you ever gotten a text while you were doing something else? You could see that you got a text, or you knew you got a text, but you couldn't tell what it was or who it was from, and you just couldn't not go check it out. You couldn't just go and look and see what the text was. What was it that someone said? Who was reaching out? What was? Is it a problem? Is someone upset with me? Is it a problem that maybe I'm not in trouble, but I still have to deal with? Is someone just wishing me a good day? I mean, that's unlikely, but... Right? Like, there's this draw that we, we know that someone has, has, and you know, it's like, it feels like a knock at the door. Right? I'm at home, someone knocks at the door, and you're like, well, I got to go see who it is. I don't want to be rude. Is it the same thing? Is, there this, is it the same level of rudeness to put off answering a text message as it is not answering a knock at the door? What, what do you guys think about that? Like, do you, do you feel that struggle do you not, does it, what I was saying by that was simply that I think it, when, we, when we have a certain number of friends on Facebook or followers on Instagram, I think that there is something in us that wants to qualify, turn that quantitative number, I have 847 friends on Facebook, and find something qualitative about it. That doesn't really, that tells me nothing about the quality of my relationships or the quality of my life. Um, it just tells me how many people like the curated image of myself that I've put out there. But we want to qualify it in a way that says, like, how many of these are meaningful? Well, I don't really care how many are meaningful, but there's something meaningful about my life because of how many friends that I have. But then I look at, you know, someone else's profile, and they have twice as many friends or followers as I do. And so what does that, what does that mean, right? That's all, that's what I was saying there. Yeah. I, th- I think that's roughly it, right? So the question is, I, I think, right, is, is something like this. What if, you know, you have a hammer. Are we, we're not really going to spend much time lamenting a nail gun, Right? Um, or really even trying to figure out what are the downsides to a nail gun, or 
um, you know, the telegraph to the telephone, even though, interestingly, when the telegraph was invented, um, that kind of begin to raise the question that, um, and, you know, Henry David Thoreau is not, like, you know, the, the most wonderful source of, of philosophy and wisdom that you can go to, but it was interesting when he was told, hey, telegraphs, you know, here's the telegraph, and here's this, all this stuff, Maine and Texas can now talk to one another. And he's, his response, he said, well, what, what do they have to say to one another? And, 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 you know, we can, on the one hand, might, you know, you know, as Christians, we might look at that and say, like, well, I, I want to, it's good to know about goings on around the world and the gospel advancing and, you know, uh, Kazakhstan or whatever. But it also, ra- it, brings, it brings us to a place where we are being asked to care about things that we have no control over. And to care about them in an immediate sense, right? Breaking news. I was in a few different places this week where there were TVs on or restaurants or whatever. And almost every single time, one was at a restaurant, one was at my in-law's house, and there was breaking news about one was there was a toddler that had gone missing. One was a, a, like a he was an older, an older gentleman. He had just walked out of his home and was missing or whatever. And so I see that, and immediately I'm, you're struck by a few different feelings, Probably one, it's a little angst, agony over this for this family whose child is missing, or this family whose whose grandfather or whatever is missing. But I mean, what am I supposed to should I should I get up and leave and and you know and go to this place wherever I don't even know where it was. I assume it was I assume they were local. They seemed like local news stations or whatever. But should I go there and raise a search party and try to find this person? I mean, if it's done locally, maybe. But what about when you read about the kid that's kidnapped from the grocery store in, well, Texas? What are you supposed to do then? I mean, you can pray, and that's not a small thing. And that is a good thing about this. But it, the in, like we're inundated with this, because as soon as that news story is over, there's another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And so... I think, to Carl's question about what's the difference between perhaps going from hammer to nail gun to whatever it is we've gone from to now it's all being brought together in one place with the internet at our our disposal, I think it is this, it is, I think, in a unique way, a push against the finite. It is... It's an extension of limitless possibilities, I think, is what's so troubling about it, I think. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically you can quote me on it because I'm saying it in front of all of you now, but don't, I'm not going to the firing wall for it, but I think that's a component to it, right? The nail gun to a hammer, I, I'm not now like, oh, I, now I can just do, like I can build an entire house by myself, Right? Like, there's still limits that are clearly imposed upon us with these incremental things. But with the social media, news, and the internet, and all of this, where in an instant I can know about what's going on in every continent on the, on the planet and talk to people from those places, I think I'm faced with this sense that I can and therefore should know everything that's going on, but the reality is that I can't. So Derek has hand then back to Carl. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carl, you have. Okay. 
That's, I still think it, I'm just not going to say it. <laughs> it's fine. It's all good. So, uh, so I, you know, but kind of back to what Trish just said earlier, I think, now, there might maybe certain groups of people, maybe, I don't, I don't know who it would be that would be better, but I, I don't know that that is the universal feeling. I get a text message, okay, I'll, I'll look at it tomorrow, maybe, next week, right? Like, I, I think that's probably a better reaction to text messages to say, I'll look at this later, you know, not necessarily a month from now. Yeah, Chip. Phones in the car, yeah. I, I couldn't find my phone a couple of weeks ago. I was trying to make a point, so I, it's right here now, but got a front and center. I didn't want to, didn't want to lose it again. Um, Becky. Right. I, I think for many it has. Yep. Yep. So, and that, that was sort of the, the, the rebuttal I was sort of going to make is it may be that many of you or many of us either do or can get to a place where we where we have that sort of peace to say, yeah, I'll get to that. I don't know that that is equally felt on the sending side of the text message. I don't know that most people send you text messages thinking, oh yeah, Steve's going to get to this whenever he gets to it, right? Sometimes we might preface it with, hey, take your time or no rush. But even that, it's like, if it's three days later, you're going to be like, well, okay, hey man. But... um, so I think that there's the way that we've come to use them is that there is an urgency that many people feel when we when we have them, Christina. And isn't it interesting when someone's calling you? Isn't it now the response? And what is going on? <laughs> what is happening in this person's life that they need to talk on the phone? That sense of dread and panic sets in. <gasps> Kelly. Yeah, so let me, let me end with this quote. So, um, song, she quotes from Siva uh, Vaid Hyanathan. I don't know. I think someone that worked at Facebook at one point, something like that. Facebook, or insert the app of your choice, is designed to keep you immersed, to disconnect you just enough so you lose track of the duration and depth of your immersion in the experience, and to reward you just enough that you often return, even when you have more edifying, rewarding, or pleasurable options for your time and effort within your reach. This is not an accident. And so um, this is, we'll, we'll see more and more, is, I think, by design. But these things, they, they do, they off, it's this... I don't. I think it's more than just the, the like. What's the novelty of it? Of something new, but that's a big part of it. But it's this this offering, this promise. Hey, whatever it is you could be doing in your real life with the humans right around you, or just as Turkle talks about, sort of at length, is just being alone with your thoughts. Now, uh, she's not a Christian, so we might say being alone with God and your thoughts, but. There is something offered like, no, 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 this is, this is better. And so I think there's a, 
a lot of things that come together here, um, and we're all obviously going to be at different levels of feeling the, the pressure. Some, some of you, uh, just by your nature and decisions and choices that you made, are going to be like, it's, yeah, I hear you saying, but it's just not that big of a deal to me. I can do this or that. Some of us, and I put myself in this category, is that if it's not an all-out war against it, we will be, you will never hear from me again. Because, I, I mean, unless it's through a phone. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the draw some of us face. So, we'll pick up there next week. Let me pray, and then we'll um, go get our kids and get ready for worship. Father, thanks for your word, and I pray that you would help us as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that though all things are lawful for me, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Help us, O Lord, not to be dominated by the digital landscape, but to use it in whatever ways we can for your glory and for uh, the good and joy of others and for the advancement of your name and kingdom in all the world. It's in Jesus' name. In my prayer, amen.